Live from the Battleborn Broadcast Center, it's Cofield and Company. All right, here we go. Five o'clock hour. We're at the home of Battleborn Injury Lawyers. Beautiful studio they've got. Battleborn Broadcast Center. Mateo's alongside back in the Finley Toyota Studios. Our buddy Ari, Adam Candy is with us as well as the company. More college basketball coming up. We'll talk to a national voice and play-by-play guy, anchor, analyst, Dallin Cuff. Around 5.30, he played in the Ivy League at Columbia and uh, actually just called the Ivy League championship game. So we'll get a, a national view on things. And we'll also get into a UNLV angle uh, with Dallin Cuff, and we'll explain that in just a couple of minutes. Big Five, let's do it. Battleborn Injury Lawyers presents the Big Five at Five, number five. So, Candy, Wyoming didn't suck last night, but that was underwhelming. They could have won that game. Indiana's not a great team. They have a really good player in uh, in Davis, and he went off, and Ike got his points, so that was good. But Hunter Maldonado just kind of shrunk in the moment, made a, sl- a lot of sloppy ball handling plays, and Wyoming simply couldn't score. They looked tired. The supporting cast didn't help out a whole lot. But bottom line is the Mountain West gets four teams into the NCAA tournament, and they got to get wins. You got to win when you get to the freaking tournament. The record, especially when they're not seeded, you know, inside of 10, has been abysmal over the years. How about this, Cofield? Mountain West double-digit seeds are 1-23 and 23 in the NCAA tournament. 1-23. and 23. Give credit to the Bear, Chris Felica at ESPN, for that stat. 1-23. and 23. And this Wyoming team, you and I talked about it last week. I didn't think they belonged in the tournament with the way they were playing down the stretch. And if you come up with that showing last night against an Indiana team that a lot of people didn't think was going to get in, period, you're not doing the conference any favors moving forward. And you're especially not doing the conference any favors in a year where the seeding finally, to me, looked like the Mountain West was getting some respect, right? You get some, you get a team on the six line. You are getting more respect than this conference has gotten in the past. But games like what Wyoming did, where Maldonado was no good, Graham E.K. looks like a guy who needs to get on a workout program coming into next season because he was completely shot down the stretch, and UNLV showed that in two games against him. That's not the performance that that team needs to have for the sake of the conference. And, you know, look, I appreciate Jeff Linder going out there and beating his chest not only for Wyoming, but for the conference. You're going to beat your chest. Give us something to show for it. Number four. So the mission for UNLV running Rebel Basketball is to add some significant pieces here with 22-point-per-game Bryce Hamilton gone. So I fully expect him to scour the transfer portal. There's going to be thousands of players in there. I think the current number... I follow this every day. I think it's up to like 475. I just noticed today that hometown hero Isaiah Cottrell, who uh, played at Bishop Gorman, 6'10 big, um, coming out of uh, Gorman, he chose West Virginia over UNLV. And believe it or not, Rutgers was involved on Cottrell. Well, he's in the transfer portal, so that's an interesting game. I have no idea if they have any hooks. I think that was the, uh, the Menzies uh, coaching staff that you know got in pretty good with Isaiah Cottrell. The point is, they need help from the portal, and 
you tell me, Candy. Do they need three- and four-year guys who are developmental, or do they need a couple of pieces who are going to come right in and can be double-digit scorers? I think two years ago I would have even said to you, let's go for three- or four-year guys. Let's build the program the right way. That's what Marvin tried to do. Marvin tried to bring in three- and four-year players for the most part, and for a couple of reasons it didn't work. One, some of those players didn't develop, but two, college administrators are showing you you don't get three or four years anymore. You have to succeed sooner than that. And Kevin Kruger comes off an 18 and 14 season that I think everyone to a man and woman looks at and says, that was a success. But if we're sitting here saying the same thing next season with 18 wins, no one's going to be looking at it that way. And Kevin Kruger already showed that he could go out and build a roster from the transfer portal. Now, there were some hits. There were some misses. Maybe some of those misses come back and perform next year. But for UNLV in today's NCAA, you should be a school that can go out there and build a team through the transfer portal. That's the way it's done now. You can't look for three- and four-year guys anymore. There's too much movement. 450 guys in the portal, and we haven't even reached March Madness in earnest yet here, Cofield. Jalen Llewellyn, a 6'2 guard from Princeton, could be one of the targets. Uh, as uh, one Twitter account was pointing out, he's in the portal, but uh, that he was already within the first five hours, contacted by 20-plus programs, including Alabama, Arkansas, Ohio State, Clemson, Stanford, Georgetown, UNLV, and several others. I saw some people immediately asking the question of uh, Mike Gormala, is that kind of guy good enough? Oh, I think he's good enough for the UNLV program when you look at the competition. And keep in mind, do not discount Ivy League basketball. The brand of where the level of Ivy League basketball has been going up and up and up. And if you remember the last couple of years, there have been some pretty significant transfers who've come out of the Ivy and played a big role at bigger schools. Uh, Michigan was a much different team uh, without their point guard from a year ago, who was an Ivy League guy. Seton Hall picked up a really good Ivy League player, so the Ivy can produce players. But the point is, this is a guy who uh, averaged like 13 points a game, shot 40% from three, these are the types of players, you know, experienced players who've already gotten it done at other stops that UNLV needs to bring in. I agree with you entirely, but the question also is reasonable, and the question will forever be known for UNLV as the David Jenkins question, because that's the guy who came over with TJ Otzelberger, was hailed as the savior of the program after he averaged more than 20 up at South Dakota State, and you know what? He was a guy who proved that he could not get it done at this level of basketball. And so the question is reasonable of yeah. a guy coming from the Ivy, but I also saw Jalen Llewellyn in that Ivy League championship game, and dude can play. Number three. Cofield and Company, Big Five here with uh, Adam Candy, Ari alongside. We're live at the Battleborn Broadcast Center. Uh, Bryant has uh, cut the lead to five. Right State up 62-57, 13 minutes left, a couple of 16s in this one. Okay. I don't want to be a broken record on this, but I'm going to warn people, based on what we've seen the last couple of days with the Raiders, when you get your Raiders news, you have to consider the source. Because what's happening now is we have a ton of news aggregators who are putting out stuff on the NFL that have no connections and aren't talking to people with the Raiders. I would argue that the majority of beat writers that cover the Raiders don't really have hooks into the Raiders and the new regime yet because it's a new regime and it's a Patriots regime, and I don't know that they're going to have a lot of friends that they're leaking to. And 
The point I'm going to bring up is I saw multiple people who claim to be Raiders insiders saying that Stephon Gilmore to the Raiders was really, 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 really close. Now, did I miss it in the last 20 minutes? Ari, can we check social media? Maybe it just came down, or maybe it's going to come down tonight. But the reason I bring this up is not a, hey, he's going after, you know, uh, in some cases, you know, beat writers. In other cases, you know, younger people are trying to make their way. You know, the reason I bring it up is all of these are thrown into the same barrel. And for Raiders fans, they see it and you get false expectations. Like there was a list out the other day with the best cornerbacks available on the market. And it's like, hey, these are the best fits for the Raiders. Well, are they the best fit? If the Raiders aren't willing to go 13 million plus on a cornerback, then none of them are really a good fit. And I think it sets up, really, in all fan bases, Candy, this false expectation at times. And we saw it come to fruition in the last couple of days where people were like, what are the Raiders doing? They're not doing anything. What's happening? Who said they were going to do anything the first three days? You're reading lists from people who are just putting out the biggest names. That doesn't mean they're really in on them. It doesn't mean they're close. It doesn't mean they actually want them or want to spend top dollar for a player. Now, today they got Chandler Jones. That's a good thing. But, by the way, I didn't see one report the last couple of days that they were making a run at Chandler Jones. What does that say about how tight-lipped this organization is going to be now? You're exactly right about the Chandler Jones thing. That one came so far out of left field for a franchise that we thought was set with Ngakwe and Crosby coming this year that it shocked everyone, including all of the clowns out there on social media who like to just put two words on a tweet and think that that means they're going to get some credit. You know what the two words are, Cofield? Per source. Per source. I can say per source all day long and claim that I know something. And these guys who go out there and throw things at the wall with per source and then delete the tweets when it doesn't work out, but then are real quick to take credit when one of the many darts they throw at a board happens to hit. When they do that crap, yes, absolutely. Consider the source because these guys are clout chasers who have nothing more than a Twitter account, who have no real information. I'll tell you what, I have my tweet deck set up where, yes, there's a search for Raiders, but it has to re reach a minimum threshold of retweets and likes before I even see the person. Because I want to have at least some reason to go look at the tweet in the first place, as opposed to potentially getting duped by every clown with a Twitter account who wants to claim to be an insider. There are none for this organization right now. Number two. So Chandler Jones is the first big, big, big signing. Uh, upwards of... Uh, you know, 17 mil per if you just average out the $51 million deal. By the way, Von Miller has signed with the Bills in a pretty big deal as well. Uh, on Jones, for you, the biggest narrative is what? This is a sign that this is a team of now, correct? That's the biggest sign that I take out of it, Steve. Chandler Jones is a now player. He's a guy who's pushing 33 years old. And yes, Tom Brady can play to 43. Not a lot of NFL players put that kind of mileage on their tires and are still on the road. So if you look at the top 10 pass rushers from last year, you're only going to find a, a couple of guys of this age. You're going to find Von Miller, who had a resurgence with the Rams. You're going to find Chandler Jones, who had a pretty damn good season in Arizona, even despite not getting his new contract or the trade request that he had at the beginning of the year. But that being said, a signing for now is not what this team needs. Spending that kind of money on a pass rusher 
is not what this team needs. This is not a team of now, and I think Ziggler and McDaniels are wrong to look at it that way. I think this is a team that if you very honest with yourself and you say, can we compete in this division right now against these other rosters? The answer is no. But I also realize I can't come in and throw a useless product on the field for Las Vegas fans who are in what year two legitimately of paying for season tickets and go into the games. You can't put a terrible nothing product on the field. But the problem here is if you give Chandler Jones three years, what's this going to look like by the end of that third year? That's how long the guarantees really are in this deal. Now contrast that with Buffalo. Buffalo goes and gives essentially the same deal to Von Miller. That is a team that is primed to win the Super Bowl. That is a team that is the Super Bowl favorite on every odds board. If ever there's a team that's going to overpay in the second or third year of a contract and say, hey, you know what? We'll deal with the dead money later. It's the Buffalo Bills. Go get the piece that you're missing. The one thing you haven't had is consistent pass rush. Yes, go spend on Von Miller in that case. If you're the Raiders, it's great that you're going to have Crosby and uh, Chandler Jones together. What else do you have on this roster that gives you any confidence you're going to compete and be any more than an eight or nine win team? Not enough right now. Number one. So you say the Raiders aren't a team of now. Oh, we're going to find out in the next couple of days here if the Golden Knights are a team of now. The trade deadline is coming. They are coming off a horrific road trip, 0-5, 7-3 in the finale. I mean, things just came unraveled down the stretch. Is this a team of now? We've been bouncing this around for two weeks. We thought we'd get some answers, and we got a resounding bad answer on this road trip. What do you do, Candy? What do you do with this team? You're stuck. You are on this horse, and there is no way to jump off. And I use horse because everything around the Golden Knights goes back to a horse in the end. The Golden Knights have their main horse, Mark Stone, on injured reserve. Their horse in net in Robin Leonard on injured reserve. And what's left are the way they're playing, kind of a bunch of pack mules going down the Grand Canyon. And what the Golden Knights have shown on this road trip is that fans have every reason to be upset at what's being put out there. We talked to Justin Watkins earlier, and Justin, a season ticket holder, said that he's okay with the prices. He's okay with the fact that Bill Foley is charging astronomical prices, the third highest ticket price in the league, the second highest beer price in the league, the second highest hot dog price in the league because he's putting the money back into the product. Well, the product right now is not worth that money. And I thought the Golden Knights were going to come out of this road trip having righted the ship and still in position to make the playoffs. 80% chance going into the road trip, 54% chance according to moneypuck.com today. Steve, I am, uh, I am wildly curious to see what the reaction to this Golden Knights team is going to be at the Fortress tomorrow night. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a fan petition now, right, to fire Pete DeBoer? change.org you can always get a petition right anybody can file a petition <laughs> yeah. but Pete DeBoer has one out there right now from some Golden Knights fans saying they should fire him look in the end we can trace this back and Mike McKenna former VGK broadcaster told us this last week we can trace this back to Marc-Andre Fleury being traded away in the offseason because it said to this fan base we don't care what you think 
We care what we think about putting this team together to win the Stanley Cup. And you know what? Right now, what you think ain't working. It's the Big Five at Five, brought to you by Battleborn Injury Lawyers. If you've been injured, call Justin Watkins at Battleborn Injury Lawyers, 570-9000. We loved the team we had this year. We knew everyone we brought in this year. We expected to play winning football, Reich said. Next year's roster will be next year's roster. I don't want to open uh, it up about one player and then start talking about all of them. He said, you asked me about Carson, then who are you going to ask me about next? T.Y.? You know, that was after the season, some of the initial uh, exit convos with the Colts. That, of course, Pat McAfee, who played for the Colts, does a uh, radio show now, and he was talking about how Frank Reich at the time refused to make any commitment to Carson Wentz. Well, (laughs) now we see why he didn't make a commitment. Carson Wentz was moved. Raiders and Colts made a deal today. We just talked about Chandler Jones coming from the Cardinals to the Raiders. Well, the Raiders decided, hey, we got Chandler Jones. Now we don't need Unique Ngakwe. So he was sent to the Colts. And now, slowly but surely, Candy, the Raiders are starting to build back up their cornerback ranks, but they're doing it in an interesting fashion. And as I out all week, no one really has hooks into what these guys are doing with the Raiders. And these lists out there that said they were getting J.C. Jackson, you know, maybe Gilmore is the one that's left, but the top five guys, four of the five, are not available anymore. I mean, those lists were just not sourced well. All right, so what are the Raiders pulled off here? Because I know they just made an addition from the Ravens as well. So they trade Yannick Ngakwe to the Colts and get Rock Yassin, former second-round pick, who had his best coverage year last year for Indianapolis. Rock Yassin's been hurt a little bit throughout his time in the NFL, but that might work out for the Raiders. Could slot in as a number two kind of guy. Maybe he takes the step forward and is a number one kind of guy. Uh, Nate Hobbs, of course, you think you have Nate Hobbs set in the slot, one of the great rookie seasons for a cornerback in the NFL last year. Uh, now they go out and they sign Anthony Averett one year, four and a half million, according to The Athletic, uh, from Baltimore. And look, I want to be fair to Anthony Averett. The Ravens expected him to be their number three cornerback coming into the season last year. Then Marcus Peters got hurt. Then Marlon Humphrey got hurt. And then Anthony Averett got set to full toast mode uh, by every team that played against Baltimore. Because remember, after they lost those two cornerbacks, the Baltimore Ravens didn't win another game. Anthony Averett, in pro football focus grade, ranked 104th out of 129 qualifying cornerbacks last year. He gave up one of the highest target amounts in the entire league. By the way, only played 14 games. He is the only one in the top 20 of targets who were uh, guys who were targeted who played only 14 games. Some of them played far more than that. So you hope you look at Anthony Averett as a guy that the Raiders aren't going to have to rely on because think about it from last year. They go out, they get Casey Hayward. You feel like the Casey Hayward signing is a maybe sort of thing. He had had an off year after being really good for the Chargers for a number of years, and he comes in, and he's outstanding. But there are a lot more guys off the street who don't work out than there are Casey Hayward. So you do have a reasonable question to ask for the Raiders here as to what's the next move coming at cornerback, whether it's Stephon Gilmore, whether it's the draft. I don't think Anthony Averett is the last piece of the puzzle. More on the Raiders, more on the NFL, more on Chandler Jones being stolen by the Raiders from the Cardinals. That's coming up in about 20 minutes. We want you to get into our March Mania Bracket Challenge, lvsportsnetwork.com. It's free, free, free. Grand prize is worth upwards 
of fifteen hundred bucks. It's brought to you by Sahara Las Vegas. I heart mac and cheese and Finley Honda. Go up there, make all the picks. You're going against Ari, myself, Candy, Willie from Cofield and Company, and you have a chance for free to win a really nice prize package. March Mania Bracket Challenge. Get in now, lvsportsnetwork.com. We break down the brackets next with one of the college basketball experts from ESPN. It's Dallin Cuff. Join the conversation on Twitter at Cofield and Co. Next in line. They need certain. Cofield and Company. Cofield and Company. Kick to Llewellyn. He's not going to stop firing, and he hits. Kicks it out. Llewellyn is wide open. He hits it. Three-point game. He's going to go long. Somebody's got to touch it. They do. Llewellyn hits it. He's going to have a look. That's off. And it's over. The Bulldogs are going dancing for the third time in five seasons for the Ivy League. The ball is tipped. There you are. You're running for your life. You're a shooting star all the years. No one knows just how hard you worked. But now it's yours. Yeah, that'll be one of 500 times we play that song. I think we've already played it 14 times because uh, I hear people complain about it. Up yours, up yours, right? Wright State leading 77-63, six and a half minutes left, 16-16 game. Uh, and in spite of my uh, surly tone there with uh, one shining moment, we are in a good mood, fired up, love the brackets, and love Ivy League basketball. You heard the call there on ESPN. Uh, let's get that dude on right now. Dallin Cuff played in the Ivy League, and let's break down some uh, stories from out of that league, but also the brackets in general. Dallin, how you doing? Doing really well. Shout out to your producer, Ari. I hadn't heard the call yet, so thank you for playing that. Uh, that was cool. And, of course, the song got me juiced, changed my entire mood. So thank you. There you go. Ari is uh, unbelievable with his uh, – his. he just has a sense. He knows when to put together those, those great rejoiners. So, you know, we actually – there's an interesting tie from that game – um, it just came down earlier today that, uh, you know, Jalen Llewellyn, actually it was yesterday, and a bunch of Princeton players are in the portal and that UNLV could be calling on uh, Llewellyn. So uh, before we get into the game itself, what did you think of him now that, you know, now he's in a transfer portal? He's got a lot of big schools going after him. Absolutely. He had a lot of big schools before he went to Princeton, very much. He's a four-star recruit uh, that UVA wanted bad. And I remember talking to Tony Bennett after he committed. I uh, guess Tony knows where I was at the school. He's like, man, we, that guy. He would have been a really good here. And he, he, he'd be really good anyway. I mean, he was an all league player at the Ivy League multiple times. Um, and I, for those of your listeners that don't know, the Ivy League is, is stupid in this regard. We don't allow grad, graduate students to play basketball. So we spend four years grooming kids and proving them that a lot of these kids would love to stay at that institution, but they have to leave if they want to play college basketball instead of go be a pro. So now he can go play grad school anywhere. If you know if he's interested, they'll be one of many. Um, he's a 6'4 guard that really can handle it, explosive off the bounce has really improved his three-point shooting. He's up to about just just uh, above 40%, which is obviously a really good three-point shooter. This season, he played one of his worst games of the season against Yale in their loss, which I felt terrible for him. He had some open looks. He didn't make them throughout the game. Uh, shot, I think it was like 4 for 14 or something like that, and uh, had a turnover in the, with, at the final possession when they were down three or down two and could have tied the game or taken the lead. Um, so I feel bad for that young man, but he's a great young man. He's a great player, and there'll be a lot of kids on that Princeton team and across the Ivy League. You see right now Paul Atkinson, Playing for Notre Dame tonight. Uh, he was an all-league player. He was an honorable mention in the ACC this year. Uh, you see Ryan Schwieger playing at, uh, in, 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 in where's he at right now? He, there's a bunch of guys at a bunch of different places right now. You're going to see that become that's already become a trend, and it'll just continue. 
And, and as you pointed out, Llewellyn was a, a pretty heavily recruited guy. Fans should look mm-hmm. at the Ivy and go, oh, those guys can't play elsewhere because we've seen them transfer certain players and be big contributors at bigger spots. Yeah, do you, I mean, Jordan Bruner at, at, went from Yale to Alabama last year, and that team was a big-time player. Uh, the first one to really do it was Sean Miller went from went to Cornell back in like 2014 when grad transfer became a thing, um, and he was he was really impactful on the UConn team. Uh, and you see it pretty much you see it all over the place. This is not because um, Evan Boudreaux played at Purdue for two years. He got he graduated in Dartmouth in three years and played played at Purdue for two years and was one was a big contributor for them. So this is a trend that that coaches are very aware. I think I think fans are becoming aware of how good the league is. But the league, I couldn't have played in the league now. The way it was when I—it's oh, wow. not even close, guys. I mean, it, the league is way more athletic, way more talented. It's got a bunch of three and four-star guys. You know, Tommy Hamaker had had a, the tenth-rated recruited class in the country in two thousand six and two thousand fifteen or sixteen. It was uh, unfortunately Bryce Aiken, who's still playing for Seton Hall, and Seth Towns, who's now at Ohio State, uh, had injury issues. But those guys, same way, they went and grad transferred elsewhere, but they had injury problems. But those guys um, were, were top hundred players. They had four top hundred players. Like this is not abnormal. They and they've won games. Harvard's won games, Yale's won games in the tournament in the last five or six years. So um, it's, a, it's a really good league with a bunch of good players that come in and they're willing to fit a new role. They don't fight the coach. They come in and do what's asked of them, and I guess that's not surprising. Can Yale give Purdue trouble in Milwaukee on Friday? No. That is, I'm not supposed to root for anybody, but I'll tell you what, I didn't root in that game, but I knew intellectually in watching the games, Princeton presents more challenges to any, to any high major team. Because of how they space the floor, they have four guys that shoot over thirty percent. They have a kid, no Tosan Aloma, who uh, is potentially an NBA player. He's a junior, will be a rising senior. Just started playing, and when he was fourteen years old, and he's only played his second year of college basketball. Remember, last year they did not play in the Ivy League. Um, but he's six eight and is like a point forward, distributes the ball, great handle, learning to learn to shoot threes too, a more consistent clip. Um, but they were unique and they were really tough to defend. Uh, they played at VCU there night lost, but I, I think that's a little different playing the NIT. Um, but Yale relies on being athletic, physical, long for the Ivy League, and usually takes some time to develop some of those guys. This team is not as talented as James Jones' team that beat Baylor in 2016. It's not even close. 2019, Mia Oni, he left three years. He left early to do the NBA. He left after three years to go to the NBA. Uh, he's with the Jazz right now. Um, but that 2019 team almost beat LSU uh, as a 14-3 game. Yale doesn't quite have it. They, they have, Azar Swain is an outstanding player and really a tough shot maker. I think people will see that, but they don't really have enough outside of him to help that, that even produce poor wing, wing defense, they can't take advantage of it on a high level. And the interior is how the you know, likes to play, but you literally have, are up against the biggest front court in the country and a 7-4 monster in Zach Eady. Oh, and if he goes out, Trayvon Williams comes in at 6'10", you know, 215 is the best passing big in the country. So it's a terrible matchup for Yale. Um, I'm not even thinking about them winning. I'm worried about them covering and this cover spread to 16. ESPN's Dallin Cuff joining us here on Cofield and Company, and that leads right into the question that I wanted to ask you, talking about the spread. Uh, in my day job, I work for a publication where we just posted a story at Legal Sports Report talking about how some networks, some broadcasters are still kind of getting their heads around how to incorporate the betting side into their broadcast. You're someone who obviously has a comfort level with it. You go on social, you know, you'll have some of your favorite picks uh, on there and so on. How did that develop for you to get more of a, a comfort and expertise level there? <laughs> I don't want to laugh, Adam, but it is funny. Um, uh, my dad always thought that I was growing up. Yeah, I knew the spread well because I was five years, four years old. Um, he played college basketball. I mean, it's just the way he, he grew up in the inner city of Pittsburgh. And he grew up hearing about it, talking about it. And then the same thing, I, I, I didn't 
and my uh, my mom's side of the family, a lot of uh, old school Italian men were definitely dabbling and had bookies and whatnot. So I was very aware <laughs> of that. And then I go to college. This is real. There's not a single college game I play where I didn't know the spread. It was now it never affected me in game. I never thought about it in game. Uh, I'd never bet up until probably you know four or five years out of college. Um, but uh, I had some serious degenerates of my boys I grew up with. They'd be texting me on the bus like, "You're getting six at Hofstra. What do you think?" I was always saying like, "Yeah, well, we got you. We got you." Um, <laughs> uh, and I got like no doubt. Like I was always about like, "Yeah, no problem." And it never entered my mind. And I always thought whatever the line was, like maybe if they said, "Hey, you're playing." You know, NC State in the Garden, you're getting 24. Even then, I was like, we're getting 24, let's go. And we lost by like five to them. Um, but I was just grew, I grew up around it, I heard about it, I knew about it. And I've always found it entertaining. And then, of course, once I graduated and I started like uh, paying more attention from an NFL standpoint and the monster that became, I never played fantasy because I refused to ever, 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 ever in any camp capacity root against uh, my Pittsburgh Steelers. But uh, I will do some emotional hedge betting these days. Especially if Tomlin's teams are getting seven points, which means our, which of giving seven, we're we're gonna not cover. It just never happens. Um, so yeah, I just grew up in it, and I've always found it enjoyable. I love it, and now now that the business has gone that way, it's allowed a, 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 you know an interest and a passion to meld with professionally what has become advantageous. In all honesty, I would say if you are in this business now as a sports broadcaster and you can't talk gambling, and you're like in your mid thirties or late thirties like I am, you're you better figure it out. You better learn. Because yep. I, I, you're, you're going to find yourself in a space where you are becoming the minority in the mix in terms of just being able to be fluent. You don't have to bet. You don't have, but, but the fluent in the basics is what it's required. And still there's a lot of people that don't do that or haven't tried to do it. And I think that um, you know, you're, you're missing the boat there because every company, including my employer, our employer, ESPN, is, is uh, fully behind sports gambling going forward. Down Coffee, ESPN. I love that you said that because it also – frames narratives going into a game and during a game and i will guarantee you there will be someone in the 413 game between south dakota state and providence if south dakota state wins as a 13 yep. you're going to hear people going massive massive upset i mean by the seeds i suppose it's a two-point spread yep and i mean i have south dakota state in full disclosure so i mean i, I that, that you're 100 going to hear that you might hear it the first time you may hear it is when that michigan game game ends now, I would like to think whoever's calling that game, it's the first game of the tournament. They're favored by two and a half at the 11th. But I'm bet when it ends. You hear, you've got the first upset in the book by the seed, but nobody thinks, like, the, the book from the beginning is they're getting two and they're laying two and a half. When you look at the team, Michigan physically, with Hunter Dickinson, Colorado State has always struggled with size. I love David Roddy. I'm a Mountain West biased dude. I, that's problematic. I, I'm trying to, sh- I try to shed that when I make my picks, but it bleeds through. Like, I took Wyoming last night. And when I got the four and a half, I was, like, giddy about it. And that didn't that didn't play out because Hunter Maldonado had ten thousand turnovers. Um, but uh, <laughs> that, there will be that same comment made after the Michigan game. So by the seed, yes, it's an upset. But by the game, it is not an upset. I want to go back to something you mentioned a moment ago. Since we have someone who's a diehard fan and an expert, uh, we haven't really talked a lot about this on the show. But uh, Mitch Trubisky is here to save the Steelers franchise. True or false? <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of anything more false. I mean, that, that the, I'm concerned because, guys, we are in. I mean, we always, my, my brother and I always say, it, we are fortunate, like, spoiled fans. Like, he, he, he was, he's eight and a half years older. He's born in 75. So he will always say, yo, man, you didn't live through the 80s. You don't remember all that. I mean, I was born in 83. I remember Bubby Brister and Merrill Hodge and Tim Fumbled Worley. Like, I remember, but it wasn't like emotionally, I wasn't emotionally affected at six and seven watching those debacles. But he's like, dude, we're headed. He's like, I'm worried we're heading back there. Like, I, he's like, I can't live like that again. 
from basically like 92 on, it's been the expectation and what's been reached a lot of times, at least the playoffs in most years, AFC Championship games. We've had heartbreaks in those with Barry Foster in the mid-90s and then in 2001 in 99 with Cordell and the Patriots beating us and all this other stuff. And we've had other, you know, lost in Super Bowl, which we were at with the Packers, but we were there. You're in the mix. You're relevant. Right now you got no GM. Kevin Colbert, Colbert stepping down. Uh, obviously, quarterback situation is 20 years. Been sol- I mean, solid. I, I, I've never liked somebody less personally, but I had to root for them uh, than, than Ben Roethlisberger, but that's just, 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 it just is. Um, but now we have nobody behind the fine center. And that's the last few years, he, he's been serviceable at best, but now we don't even know if it's serviceable. And it's just, when you don't know the quarterback, I'm not sure what you have in the NFL. So, and our run defense is a mess. There's just, there's just all these questions. And an organization that has prided itself on stability and been so stable and solid for so many different, literally, decades, this is entering a, a critical time. I'm not saying in the NFL you can always bounce back quickly and you can, things can change fast. So I'm hopeful for that. I hope this year that's coming of this instability feeling and probably, uh, you know, we're, we're, I think it's plus 625 to, to win the AFC North, which I've never seen the number that high. And I hope to never see it again. I hope this all is an aberration and it's just this year, but I'm a little uneasy. I could completely understand why. I mean, there, there's a part of me that feels like Mike Tomlin wants to just see how difficult he can make things on himself and still get a winning record uh, on the Pittsburgh Steelers <laughs> ledger because right now you, you look at what's there, and, and if that defensive line isn't going to hold up, then you know that division, Baker Mayfield aside, is going to be brutal. Absolutely. And, I mean, we've got, you know – it was funny whenever Baker that first year when they they started playing, my brother sent me text and being like, "Dude, we're in real trouble." And I'm like, "I think you're overselling Baker a little bit." Then we he, we've seen his struggles. So we watched Burrow, and I'm like, "He's like, yo, I think we're in trouble." And I'm like, "I think you're right." Like there was, I just it just it just looked different. It felt different. And then Burrow hurts, it gets hurt, and then he came back. You know, arguably even stronger as he grew through the course of this season. And Lamar's an MVP. So yeah, and, and let's not forget like the Baltimore Ravens are a rival for a reason. They're remarkably stable, incredibly well run make great personnel decisions, are tough, and every game's a battle with them. And now the same thing with Cincy. That division's just, it's going to be really, really tough. And we're the only ones without a quarterback. And even having Baker, he's better than serviceable. Um, it's it's uh, an uneasy feeling that we haven't felt in a while. And it's, it's disconcerting. Dallin, before we close out, uh, let's finish up with where we started, a little college basketball and the end of the tournament, the Final Four. Did you go rogue at all with your Final Four picks? Anyone outside of a one or two? Yeah, I guess then on that definition, I did go rogue. I went Texas Tech out of the West. Uh, they're a plus 550 to get to the Final Four. I like the bet, but more importantly, I like their pass. Um, they're a team that defensively, they're the top team in the nation in adjusted defensive efficiency. They make you feel you feel them on every single possession. They do a great job of keeping the ball on one side. They don't allow you to ball, reverse the ball. They don't, they don't allow you to do what you want to do on the offensive side of the ball. Um, and now they played Gonzaga early in the year. That's who they have to beating the Elite Eight. They lost to Gonzaga. Uh, I think it was in Phoenix in a neutral game by about eight or nine points. But that team in December, Gonzaga's gotten better, but the Red Raiders have gotten significantly better, and particularly on the offensive end. They were pretty anemic uh, early in the season. They were really reliant on T.J. Shannon um, and, and Kevin McCullough. Those guys were – Shannon was dinged up at the time. McCullough and both have been in that lineup throughout basically December to early February. And through that time, Bryson Williams, his game developed. He became an all-league player. Kevin O'Banner, who transferred from Oral Roberts, remember him from last year, obviously went to the Sweet 16. Him and Max Aismas were a dangerous pick-and-pop combo. Uh, he transferred in. He makes shots and plays. Adonis Arms grew it, grew into his role. And now McCullough and Shannon are back to full health, and they're not reliant on them. They're just contributors on both ends of the court and at a high level. So I think they're – a very different team than the Zags saw 
back in December, and I think of the same thing. To beat Gonzaga, you've got to make them feel you. You've got to take them out of their flow, make them uncomfortable, make them essentially take a step back. You saw Duke do that here in Vegas back in November. Obviously, we all saw Baylor do it, but that was a different team, but it's the same blueprint last year at the National Championship game. Alabama did it to some extent, and then St. Mary's did it, not in the exterior, which was the place we'd always seen kind of how that could play out. They did it in the interior. I mean, they just dominated. Matthias Koss owned Drew Timmy on one end. They got deep post touches. On the other end, they're pushing Timmy out five, six, seven feet off the block. He's 0 for 6 in the first half. They controlled that game from tip to finish. They controlled that pace is what you got to do against Gonzaga. I think Texas Tech has similar pieces to do very similar things to the Zags, so I have them going uh, out of that region. Other than that, i got Kentucky, Kansas, and Arizona. So those are a two, a one, and a one, so not that creative, I guess. Dallin, we appreciate it. And uh, big, big uh, stuff there. I uh, really enjoyed the gambling talk because, uh, like you said, we, we, we do, as a Vegas show, we have so many people on. If we throw them a gambling question, sometimes they freaking freeze up. I actually, I had one of our guests earlier say, uh, we, I, I want to talk about this coming up on the show, too, about ethics and when we're allowed to make picks. Um, I had one of our guests earlier say, you know what, I'm, I'm sorry I don't pick the, the local team. Like, I don't make selections on the – I'm like, I, I don't know what world we reside in. I, like, I have to make picks. It's just – it's part of what we do. That's what I – I've said the same thing. And the only time I feel – I mean, if I'm doing a game, I will not bet on the – if I'm calling the game, I will not bet on the game. But what I've done a lot this year, and just by happenstance, because our schedule sometimes I don't pay – I know I'm in studio, and we're, hey, we're on ESPN2 at this time, and move to one and all that. I don't necessarily pay attention. Just tell me where to show up. I don't know what I'm doing. I know all the teams were good. Yeah. I don't necessarily know what game I'm in studio for, so a lot of times I've bet the game and I've publicized that, that I'm in studio for. I don't know who actually knows it. Sometimes I feel a little weird because I'm openly rooting in the studio, but they don't know that. I'm not calling the game. It doesn't matter. I'm on for like five minutes. So there, that's the world there, we're yeah. living in. We, we should yep. know it. It should inform our call and it should inform our discussions as well. Dallin, that was great. Thank you so much. Anytime, guys. Be well. There he is, one of the uh, analysts, anchors. He's also uh, for ESPN. He's also on the uh, – the gambling show they do that uh, Kazarian does. I was blank on the name of it. Daily Wager. Um, excellent spot there. Good booking by Ari. You know what, uh, Candy, I want to run by the uh, that ethical question because uh, I, I had a question earlier that I was tagged on about writers and you know betting on teams they cover or making picks in general. And, man, 2021 is a lot different than whatever, 2005 or 1985. Or, you know what, maybe, maybe it isn't. Maybe this is the way it should have been the whole time. Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. Cofield and Company presents Grab Bag. Don't touch it. Don't even look at it. Only on ESPN Las Vegas. Stick your hand in there, Dave. So, Candy, here's our question for you. I was tagged a little while ago on a on a media you know making picks thread by our buddy Jeff Grammer from the Albuquerque Journal because he had a a tweeter, a follower, say, "Hey, is it unethical for writers to be making picks on the sport they cover? Where are we on this now? Is it different for sports writer?" Is it different for Dallin Cuff, ESPN anchor? Is it different for sports radio guy? I don't think it's different for anybody than it's ever been. I think it's just out in the light. Are we going to act like people who have worked in sports for some large majority of their lives aren't betting? Whether they're betting with each what? other, betting with a bookie, betting offshore, betting in a Nevada sports book, now betting on a legal sports betting app somewhere? Stop it. Stop it. I don't think I started, Brett Musburger or Al Michaels ever bet a game. 
No, no. Uh, that's clear as day from listening to them talk on their broadcasts and from one of them starting a sports betting network. Yeah, look, I placed my first bets of my life when I was about 13 years old with a classmate in high school betting on NBA games. And I learned how hard it was to collect when I had to shake them down in the lunchroom like a month later for the money. We've all been wagering for a long time if we work in sports, even if it's not formally, even if it's not putting money with a bookie, even if it's not going out there and betting over the counter at a sports book in Vegas. We've all been doing some form of this. So Dallin Cuff is absolutely right when he says, why aren't we talking about it? We should be talking about it because that is the wave of where this is going. It's not going back the other direction, man. And so should you be betting on games you cover? I think that's probably gray. If you're Dallin Cuff and you're calling the game, you absolutely should not be because now you're potentially influencing the call of the game. Uh, but beyond that, come on, man. This is not like everybody's doing it. Well, wouldn't you do it if everybody jumped off a bridge? No, it's the fact that this has been happening anyway, and now it's just out in the light. Dallin also mentioned you know, shaping the story for Michigan and Colorado State, a six against an 11. The Big Ten team is the eleven. Michigan is now a one and a half point favorite down from two and a half. So that one that one's gonna that one will screw up everyone. Because I think people expect, you know, if you just look at the programs and the names, they expect Michigan to win. If they do, it's not an upset. It would actually be the six pulling the upset on the eleven, which is just, you know, freaking brain scramble for too many people. Well, Cofield, I would never tell our ESPN Las Vegas listeners that if they're going to enter our bracket challenge at lvsportsnetwork.com that they should look at the lines before they make their picks in the bracket because I wouldn't want them to be able to beat us. <laughs> Experts like you and me and Ari. Right. No advantages for you people. Um, no. Have you, have you picked a Final Four yet? I have not. I okay. have not picked a Final Four yet, but I will say, weighing in on what Dallin said about Texas Tech, those Big 12 teams are battle-tested this year. Those yeah. are some of my favorite games to watch all year. I My Final Four, and I, I mentioned this the other day, is uh, is very West Coast biased. So I've got Gonzaga, UCLA, Arizona, and Kansas in. I mean, look, Zags and Arizona make all the sense in the world, and UCLA is all about whether they're healthy. If UCLA is healthy, that's as good of a team as anybody in the country. Yeah, I just thought that bracket of all of them was manageable. I don't think Baylor is a dominant team, nor do I believe much in Kentucky. I think Purdue can get beat by some small ball. So you're right. If UCLA is humming, which you just mentioned, there's questions. If they're humming, they can beat anyone, and they are a really good defensive team, and they do have some good backstops at the back of the defense to play aggressive. On uh, the perimeter, thanks to Battleborn Injury Lawyers for housing the show today. We'll see you.